I just, uh, just want to start by picking up something Chris said. 30 years ago, a uh, Catholic and a cessationist Anglican got to know each other and prayed to God that we would love to do something uh, for him together. We spent the next 30 years crisscrossing up and down the country in completely different churches, in completely different uh, lives. And here we are, 30 years later, he leads worship and I get to preach. So don't tell me that something's impossible for God. I'll give you that one for free. The talk uh, that I've been asked to do tonight, as, as, as Fiona kind of said, is, is one I've given a few times, but um, Tim Smith has asked me if I could share it tonight. I gave it recently uh, as part of the Kingdom Culture course. So if you've just done that course, um, apologies. Uh, and if you don't like the talk, blame Tim. Um, I want to give you a clue as to what this is about while they're, while they're trying to get that sorted out. Um, this is a transcript of a radio conversation which was published um, by the Chief of Naval Operations of the, of the U.S. Navy in October 1995. Uh, so it's meant to be uh, a transcript between the U.S. Abraham Lincoln, which is an aircraft carrier, and a Canadian radio operator. So... USS Lincoln, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. You have to let me know if you get somewhere. Um, Canadians, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Ship, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, thank you. Oh, let's just catch up with myself. It's the captain of a, of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians. No, I say again, divert your course. Ship. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians. We're a lighthouse. Your call. So that is what I want to talk about, really, which is your identity. Because actually understanding who you are, understanding what your role is, understanding you know, who I am, is really key. And actually, uh, it impacts upon almost everything that you do. And who am I is one of the most common questions that people tend to ask. So, identity. It's so often misunderstood. And yet, having the right identity can have almost galactic consequences. We should have some sound now. A civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up. Never surrender. You will save us. What they got. Never give up. Never surrender. 
We're struggling TV actors. You are last hope. Where's my limo? <laughs> Okie dokie. And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away. We are actors, not astronauts. You are our protectors. That was a hell of a thing. Now, Laredo, take us out. You gotta move to the right. Would you sit your ass down? You wanna drive this to... Acting like heroes. The whole thing was just a misunderstanding. May not be enough. They look like little children. Hi, little guy. DreamWorks Pictures presents Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Galaxy Quest. You're just gonna have to kill it. Well, go for the mouth, the throat, his vulnerable spots. He's a rocket that not any vulnerable spots. It's a great film, and I, if you've never seen it, I really recommend that you check it out because what's astonishing about that film is they start with a complete understanding of who they think they are and during the course of the film they realize actually that they are so much more than they ever thought Um, and that's what I want to talk about tonight I just want to talk about who are you so the Bible says several things about who you are the Bible says we're friends in John 15 we're called priests in 1 Peter 2 we're called saints in Romans obviously we're called Christians in Acts and John calls us co-laborers with Christ it's a bit like you know when uh, the mouse and the elephant cross cross a bridge and the bridge falls apart and the mouse says yeah me and the elephant ruined that bridge you know the idea of co-laboring with Christ but I want to concentrate on one truth about identity, and I, as I think it's the most fundamental one, which is that we are children of God. John 1.12 says, To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you believe in God, by definition, you are his child. But maybe that's just one passage, you know. I've heard about these things where you take Bible verses out of context and that's not really what they mean. So maybe let's look at a few other ones. How about this one? Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I'm detecting a theme. How about this one? Galatians 4. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So you are a child of God. The Bible makes it clear over and over and over. And those are just the obvious ones. There's loads of other passages I could have picked. But why labor that one point? Why labor that one form of identity? Well, the truth is, I think this is one area we really struggle with. Let me give you another example of why identity is important. This is where I used to work when I was working in the northwest in my old surgery in Stockport. It was hard up there. It was a tough place. Um, that was my office. was actually not that door, but the one further down. Um, 
But one day I was, uh, I went for a visit and on the visit sheet, you get, you know, you get a summary of the patient's records and you get the name and address to go to. And uh, the sheet said to go to Mrs. Smith, not a real name, uh, to Central Road because she had stomach pains. Fine, so I got in my car and knew where it was, so I drove around, knocked on the door, and this lady opened up the door and she said, oh, doctor, I'm so pleased to see you. Come in, come in. So I came and sat down and said, she said, oh, do you know, my feet have just been awful. They're so swollen. I'm thinking, feet? I'm sure you had problems with your stomach. She said, yeah. She said, oh, my feet have been awful. Ever since I had that heart attack, I've just been awful. And I'm looking at my sheet with a summary of what's been wrong with, with her, and there's no mention of a heart attack anywhere. I'm starting to get this sinking feeling. So I did what, I, what you have to do and fess up and say, um, do you mind telling me who you are? And it turned out that actually instead of seeing Mrs. Smith, I'd gone to Mrs. Jones, who lived at Two Central Place, not Two Central Road. But the thing was, she was also waiting for a doctor, just not me. She wanted her doctor. So it's important that you've got the right identity, otherwise things go wrong very quickly. I don't know if you've seen this film, Lincoln, um, but actually it gives a fascinating insight into sonship. In the, in the film there's a bit where President Lincoln is surrounded by people that want to see him. He sort of comes through this corridor and they're all yelling and waving at him and want to catch his attention. And he's busy plotting with his chief of staff as to how to bring about the abolition of slavery. So no small subject matter. And then there's this special knock that he hears on another door. And President Lincoln stops mid-sentence and says, pardon me, that is a distress signal. I am bound by solemn oath to respond to. So he goes and walks over to this other door and in walks in his little, his little boy who's chattering away about some injustice that he's discovered where some plates of his have been taken away from him. And he's just, he wants to tell his dad. And he's busy telling his dad all about it. So the president sits down, he puts his son on his lap and he sort of sorts out that problem and then starts to carry on his discussion with his chief of staff with his son on his lap. That's our identity. Sons and daughters of the king who get to invade heaven at the drop of a hat and interrupt the most amazingly high level of state things that God might be up to, to tell him about our day. Now, the truth is, I've really struggled with this whole concept about being a son, being a child of God. Um, my parents got divorced when I was 11, and my father left to uh, go to the United States when I was 12. And probably from the age of 12 to about 25 or, or so, I saw him about three times. So I really sort of grew up without a really strong concept of what a father figure was like. Um, and that carried over into my relationship with God. I struggled to understand what being a child of God really was. And then I found that um, God started to speak to me. In 2009, Sarah and I, my wife Sarah, uh, went to a ministry called Restoring the Foundations. It's, it's, for those who know these kind of things, it's, it's like a sozo and inner healing type thing. And it's actually one of the ministries we offer here in our transformation center. The one we went to was like a, um, a sort of more heavy version for those who really are in trouble. Um, and it's like a week-long thing where you have a session, in, a half-day session with them, and then you sort of go away and reflect on it. 
and you do that for over five days. Now, if I'm quite honest, while I was doing it, I would have said to you, I'm not sure I got that much out of it. Um, Sarah got a lot out of it, but then she had a lot of stuff she had to deal with. Um, but <laughs> Mainly related to me. Um, but I, just, I, I, I did it, but I just did, I don't know, it just didn't really, I, I just didn't feel like I was getting very, very far. But during that week, I had this odd sensation of a ring on my finger, on my left index finger. It was like, it's like almost an itch. I could, I felt myself feeling this sort of, just my finger and thinking, that's bizarre. I could just feel like there's a ring there. I didn't understand what it was about. I didn't know what was going on. Um, it lasted for several weeks and then faded. And I thought, what was that about? But then, um, after that, we, um, started to do the School of Supernatural Life, or the, now it's called the European School of Supernatural Life. And if you do that, we find that most of the first year you spend talking about your identity. And, and during that time, God started to speak to me over and over and over one particular passage. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. It's a really famous one. It's the Luke 15 story about the prodigal son. Or as many people, including myself, like to call it the good father. So Jesus tells them of a man who has two sons. And I'm going to paraphrase some of it. But it says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, drop dead, dad. Well, effectively what he says is, father, give me my share of the, of the estate. He's basically saying, I can't wait for you to die. Can I have what's my due now? Verse 12 goes on to say, so the father shared, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, hopefully most of you will be familiar with the story. You know what happens next. Basically, he loses everything and ends up as a starving pig herder, which is something no self-respecting Jew would ever do. To handle pigs, to be working with pigs. He's effectively given up on his entire Jewishness. All through wild living, as the Bible says. Now, I'm not sure how it's uh, translated in your Bible, but in the NIV, they use the word squander, um, which I think is a wonderful word. And it means to waste money or supplies or to waste opportunities. And I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to judge this younger son. What a stupid man. What a sinner. He gave up all that he had been given by his loving father. And instead of staying near his father and setting up business in the town, which was what would have been expected, what he would have been expected to do was basically branch out on his own and form you know, his own business, keeping the resources in the town. Instead... He chose sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever. He gave it all up. He was not a good man. And I find it so easy to condemn, don't you? You know, you read these passages and you think, oh, I would never be like that. I would never make that kind of mistake. Do you ever do that? I do it all the time. I just think, you know, I, I, how what an idiot. How could he possibly have done that? But I want to ask you the question, what does it take for you to give up who you are 
What does it take for you to turn to comfort other than God? Money trouble? Relationship difficulties? Work stress? When the going gets tough, people turn to all sorts of things to give them comfort. Alcohol, smoking, shopping, pornography. You name it, there are all sorts of things that we will do when we decide that God isn't quite enough to get us through. So just like that son, we can waste money, time, opportunities. We can squander what God has given to us. Are we that different? And what does that do for our identity when we do that? Well, Jesus documents the son's second mistake. Because the Bible says that he says to himself when he comes to his senses, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So his second mistake is to decide that his actions now define his identity. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. There's a phrase, isn't there? Actions maketh man. So his do has defined his who. Doesn't it? I've done this, therefore my who has to be altered. I've sinned, I'm no longer be worthy to be called your son. Now again, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I find myself going, I, I would never do that. I would never make such a mistake. Is it just me? Maybe it is. <laughs> but before I understood my identity, I used to find myself thinking, if I did something wrong, some kind of sin or other, I used to feel like I needed to let a bit of time go by before I had a quiet time again, before I tried to pray again. You know, I needed to put in a bit of good service. If, you know, if I, if I was on the ministry team, I would think, well, when was my last really good prayer? You know, have I, have I stored up enough stuff in the, in the bank of God so I can maybe get a healing? You know, have I earned enough prayer credits? What was it doing when I did that kind of thing? What was it doing when I thought, yeah, maybe I should, you know, let a day or two go by before I go speak to God, you know, just until I feel a bit less guilty? I'm exactly the same as the sun, aren't I? I'm no longer worthy to come into your presence. Treat me like a servant, just for a while, till the guilt wears off. Am I alone in that? Have you ever thought the same? No, I don't think so. So what is the truth? Well, let me give you an illustration. This is my daughter, Emily. She's now studying to teach at uh, University of Southampton. Um, Well, this is how she's in my mind. She's sort of stuck at this level in my mind. Um, She's 23, but in my mind I see this. Now, Emily is a loving, kind, and extremely generous girl. Unless that is, you give her one of these. (laughs) When you give her chocolate, a whole sort of transformation thing goes on. You don't want to take one of her chocolates. It's like a tiger protecting her pups. You know, it's like you just get mauled. Now imagine eating chocolate 
was a sin. Imagine eating chocolate was one of the worst things you could do as a Christian. Well, what happens if in those circumstances my Emily did eat the Terry's chocolate orange, which she's particularly partial to? Does she become in any way less my daughter? Do my genes, do the 50% of the DNA in her that is me, does it rise up and rebel and shuffle across the carpet, going, I'm having nothing to do with you anymore? If she stays at Southampton University and doesn't come back home anymore, does that make her less than my daughter? In fact, if she changed her name, moved to Australia, got shacked up with some biker gang, got pregnant out of wedlock, and snorted crack cocaine, does that make her any less my daughter? She remains my daughter, come what may. She's still 100% my girl. And that's backed up by this parable. It's biblical. Because the Bible says in verse 20, While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. So what happens next? Well, the son tries to start his speech, doesn't he? Father, I have been, you know, and the father cuts him off. Because the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So who was looking for who? While the son was busy having his rebellion, the father was watching every day to see if his son was coming back. And then when he saw him, he ran to him. Now, there are a couple of things you need to understand about this whole running to him business. One of which is, in that era, the father would have been an elder in the town. And he would never have run. It was just totally undignified. And in fact, in order to run, because of the kind of clothing they would have worn, he would have had to have hitched up what effectively were long skirts. So that he could run. And he would have shown his feet. Which would be the equivalent of someone coming tonight in church in their underwear. That would have been the impact of him running to his son. But there was a second reason why I was running. Because upon his return, the son would have been expecting something to happen to him. He knew that he had brought dishonor on the village and there was a culture in the Palestinian villages of the day that if you shamed the village and by him taking resources out of the village and then squandering them that would have been a huge shame they had a special ceremony that they would they would have inflicted upon him they would have gone as a village with a, a jar full of corn and nuts And they would have smashed it in at him before he arrived in the village. It's called a Gesessa ceremony. And that would have basically said, you are banned forever from coming back to this village. You are not welcome here. 
And the father knew that was what the son's fate was. So he had to get there first before the judgment of men were enacted. The the father had a different message. He had a message of love and of gifts. In fact, three very special gifts. But before I get to them, I want to explore the fact that this is a story about two sons. So let me mention the second son. So verse 25 reminds us that the second son is out in the field. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. So he learns his brother is back and there's a party going on to celebrate. So the Bible says the elder son was really happy. And he hurried in to joy and celebrate. And he welcomed his younger son with great love and affirmation. Well, that's, you know, that's maybe what might have been nice to have happened. But no, the Bible says that the son is not happy. He really, really isn't happy. In fact, it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. He basically has a royal strop. So his father has to come out, which is actually another cultural um, taboo. He's left the table. He's left his guests to go deal with family business. So again, the father is prepared to put his sons before religion, culture, normality. And the Bible says the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. That's astonishing. This is how the elder son describes himself. A slave. All these years I have been slaving for you. You never gave me even a young goat. I just want to take you back to the very beginning of this parable. To verse 12. Because it says in verse 12 very clearly that the father divided his property between both sons. So the father had already given the elder son everything he had. In fact, as the elder son, he probably had two-thirds of what the father had, and the younger son probably had just had a third. So he had more than the younger son. So what's gone wrong? Well, what's gone wrong is the father had given his gift to a son. But the son didn't think he had access to it. This is my son. Well, it's a few years ago now. That's him trying to cram as many cotton wool balls into his mouth as he can and say fluffy bunnies. He's got quite a few in, actually. He's got a very large mouth. He takes after his mother. <laughs> he, I'm going to get it tonight. <laughs> He's now at university in Canterbury. And you can't believe how quiet the house is now he's at university. But then there's an end of term. And then he's back. And suddenly, crash, the door opens. And then the fridge is raided and suddenly empty. And the house is full of Nathan talking and shouting to his friends on VoIP while he's playing some 
death game on his computer. Nathan is home. Now, Nathan isn't afraid to enter our house. Nathan definitely doesn't ask permission to raid the fridge. He's expecting good things that he can have. And he's completely, completely unabashed about asking for things. He has no limits to what he thinks he can have. He has full expectation the answer is going to be yes. Nathan is in no doubt that he is a son and that he's entitled. So what's gone wrong with the elder son? What's gone wrong was the father was giving his gift to a son, but this son doesn't feel he has access to it. The elder son has what we call an orphan spirit. He has a father, but inwardly he feels as if he's an orphan. I have to be honest with you, I've had an orphan spirit for many years. And uh, it's been dealt with by Sozo and many intense years of help from Sarah. But it still flares up every now and then. I felt that I was on my own. That I couldn't trust anyone to do anything for me. That I was the only one that I could trust. I was a Christian. I believed in God. But when it came down to it, when the rubber hit the road, I felt it was down to me to sort it out. It was down to me to solve it. How do you know if you have an orphan mentality? Well, when you see people talking about their good news, and we're a good news culture, aren't we? It's not uncommon for people to get up and share some really piece of, wonderful piece of good news. If you've got an orphan spirit, instead of rejoicing over it, you'll just go, well, that's typical. That's what I wanted. How come they get what I need? Because I needed that, and they get it. Great. Why not me? It's always someone else. That's an orphan spirit. If you have thoughts like, why would God ever heal through me? There's so many better people. Look at that person there. They're astonishing. Their Facebook is full of times when they heal. God will heal through them because they're amazing and I'm just me. So I can't expect God to heal through me. That's an orphan spirit. An orphan spirit is when you do something in church, not because you love God, not because you want to do it out of joy, but when you do something out of duty that you feel you have to, because you feel like, well, you know, I better do something. They've asked for volunteers. I suppose I better do it. That's an orphan mentality. When you say to yourself, I am all alone in this problem, I have no safety net, that is an awful mentality. See, the problem with the sun, and my problem from years ago, was I never really got my head around this Galatians passage. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, or a daughter, it's one of those generic words, God has made you also an heir. Two sons. Neither of them understand who they are. So what is the answer? Now we understand the mess these sons are in. What is the answer? Well, I'll tell you next week in the part two of the sermon. No. Um, 
It's in the three gifts that the Father gives. In verse 22, each gift represents a level of revelation about identity. Verse 22 says, But the Father says to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. A robe, a ring, and sandals. Ever since I became a Christian, I've understood that first gift, the robe. For the robe signifies salvation. In Isaiah 61.10 it says, My soul exalted my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The Father, by giving him this robe, is signaling his forgiveness. By covering up the dirt and shame, he says, Your guilt is washed away. All that you've done is covered. It's forgiven. Just as all our sin, all our shame is covered by what Jesus did on the cross. Now in truth, I knew that bit. The one thing that Anglican Church is very good at is telling you that you have been saved. And I knew that. I knew my sin had been washed away. So I've been wearing that robe for years. But it didn't really help me think of myself as God's son. It didn't really help me think I've got right of access into his private chambers, just like Lincoln's son. I could just storm in and say, Dad, do you know what I need? I didn't have it. I needed more. Let me show another clip. This is about the ring and the symbolism of the ring. I know him as one who stands in the place of the son I lost. I have the love and pride in a son's achievements, which I thought I should never have again. Nothing could make stronger the bond between us, but tonight I wish to share it with you all. The formalities of adoption have been completed. Young Arius is now the legal bearer of my name and the heir to my property. This ring of my ancestors would have gone to my son. So now it is yours. So when the father gives the ring and puts it on the son's finger, he's saying, I reinstate you as a son. He's saying, you belong to this family again. He's saying, this son is part of me. The son who says I'm no longer worthy to be a son, the father says, oh, but you are. This is not a servant. This is my son. But the ring means much more than that. The ring is a symbol of power and authority. So in the clip that we've just seen, Judah Ben-Hur, if you've seen the film Ben-Hur, saves the Roman consul Quintus Arius. And they become close. And as you can see, Arius eventually adopts him as his son. And he gives him the ring partly to mark him out as being a son. 
But actually he also said that the bearer of this ring is the heir to my property. See, the ring in that culture, in the Jewish culture of the day, is a sign of coming of age. It's a sign of saying, the bearer of this ring is part of my family. He's part of me. It's, he's saying, this is my son, and he has my authority. When he speaks, he speaks with my voice. And it's not just in films. It's actually in the Bible as well. In Genesis 41:42, you may remember the story about Joseph interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh. Do you remember the, the fat cows and the thin cows and the fat wheat and the thin wheat? And in verse 42, when, when Joseph explains this, the meaning of the dreams, Pharaoh says, this is astonishing. You are the one who needs to put this in action. So Pharaoh says, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. Pharaoh gave a ring to Joseph. And he did it to say, you're in charge. You have authority. So what I didn't realize all those years ago when I felt that ring on my finger wasn't just God saying to me, you're my son. What I came to realize was saying, you're not only my son, but you carry my authority. You have my authority to act. You have my authority to speak in my name. In those days, if the son was wearing the father's ring and he made a deal, that was it. It was bankrolled by the father. So my father, God, was saying to me, I bankroll your prayers. I bankroll who you are. You have the power on earth to pray in my name. So I just I was going through the, 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 the school year at the supernatural school and I thought, I need to get a ring. I need to almost cement this, this thing that God has done for me. So when I talked to Sarah about getting a ring, she said, that, oh, that's fine, but does it have to be on your index finger? Because, you know, it'd be fine on your little finger. That's quite trendy. But on your index finger, it's a bit showy. It's, a, you know, do you need to put it there? And to be honest, at the time, my only answer was, well, that's the finger he put it on. But then I discovered something else. This is a picture of... Oh, this is a picture of Henry VIII. You probably can't see it from there, but on each of his index fingers, there's a ring. Actually, it's a bit pixelated as well. But there's a, you can just about make out there's a ring on each of his fingers. This is Bradley James playing King Arthur in the BBC production of Merlin. He, too, has a ring on his index finger. Coincidence? I don't think so. Because what God, Father God knew three years, so years ago, and what I discovered, was that a ring on your index finger traditionally signifies royalty. So what my Father God was saying when he put the ring on my finger was not just that I was his son, and then I was carrying his authority, but he was telling me, you are my royal son. You're the son of a king. That's who I am. That's who you are. You are the son or the daughter of a king. You're a prince. You're a princess of the kingdom. So what about that final gift 
the sandals on the feet. Well, the sandals are a picture of freedom because slaves in those days were barefoot. And although the son wanted to be a slave, the father saw him as free. He wanted to say, you're free of works. So he put sandals on his feet, which signify you do not work for a living. You're free. You don't have to earn your way into my house. You don't have to earn your way into my love or my provision. It's given. It's a free gift. I love you because you're my son, you're my daughter, not because of what you're going to do for me. You get to enjoy all that I have. You get to have blessings that you don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense. But why did he give it last? Well, I've thought about this quite a while, and I suppose in my own journey, I've come to realize that you can't really understand that you're free until you've got the other two things sorted. You need to understand that you're saved wearing the robe. You need to understand that you're a son or a daughter of the king wearing the ring. Then you get to understand that you're free. So why does it matter? Why, you know, I've given this talk several times. Why would Tim want me to give it again? Why labor the point? Why do we need to train our brain to think this way? Well, because the truth is, unless you understand who you are in God, unless you understand the inheritance you have, the authority you have, who backs you up, you've got nothing to pass on to anyone else. You really have very little to offer to the world. Do you remember Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4? To heal the sick, raise the dead, set free of the captives. Well, we are in the family business. When you are become a son or daughter of the king, you join the family business to heal the sick, Raise the dead, set free the captives, give sight to the blind, to release the favorable year of the Lord. But unless you understand who you are, unless you understand the authority you've got, you're never going to do it. So that's why we keep banging on about it. Because we want you to know who you are. We want you to know that when you step into a room and you say something to someone, you speak with the authority Of the Father God of heaven. When you pray for healing. You speak in God Almighty's name. You're writing checks that he will bank. He will bankroll what you do. So. How do we help you get this into your heads? Well. I think the ring is a very small reminder of a very big truth. So what I'd like to do is uh, give you your own ring. So I have some. Now, they're brass, and I'll explain about this. I've only learned this very weekend, the significance to brass. 
But I'm going to put the tiny ones, if you're very little, you want that one. If you're medium size, you want that one, or I'll put some over this side. They're all the same size. I don't go rummaging and think there's going to be a different size in there, because apart from the small, medium, large. The large are super large. The only people I know who can fit these are Faroese fishermen. Because they have big hands. But, so, if you'd like to, and there's no, there's no pressure, but if we'd like to, what we'd like to do is I've asked some people to come up. I encourage you, if you want to, to pick a ring. If it fits your index finger, then well and good, but it doesn't really matter. But if you want someone to look you in the eye, put a ring on your finger, and pronounce that you are a son of a king, a daughter of a king, and to pronounce a father's blessing on you, then we'd like to do that. And we've got plenty of time. So, and I've got quite a few people to come up because I wanted for you to have time so you didn't have to be rushed. If you don't want to do that, that's not a problem. If you want to take it home and meditate it yourself, that's not a problem. But we just want to give you an opportunity to have someone say to you and pronounce over you, you are the son of a king. You are the daughter of a king. Now these are actually plumbing rings. And they're made of brass. I got them because they look gold. And I like them. But I've discovered this weekend that there's a phrase called grabbing the brass ring. Or getting a shot at the brass ring. And it's been a phrase that's been going back since the late 19th century. And it means to strive for the highest prize. Or living life to the fullest. So suddenly, I've discovered that putting a brass ring on you is just yet a further level of revelation into the truth that when you wear this ring, you are living life to the fullest when you wear that ring. So what I'm going to do is going to play a song, and the people that I've asked to come up for you, I think what we'll do, probably do is go on either side of the stage, and then if you just grab your ring, I don't mind if you want to come to a male because you want a father's blessing, then come to one of the male. If you want it to, to come to a woman because you prefer it to be that, then that's fine. There's no male or female in Jesus. I really don't think it's an issue. I think all I want you to do is take an opportunity and get a blessing. So that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to play a song while we do that.